I said, well, I need to do my own thing. So I started my practice on my dining room table and uh, grew the business from there. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. I'm excited to have Harold Avinsky as our guest today. He has been referred to as the Dean of Financial Planning, and he loves our profession. This year, he was awarded the P. Kemp Fain Jr. Award, which is the equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award for financial planners. It's an honor to have him with us today on this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? Straight ahead, you don't want to miss insights from the Dean as he talks about the future of financial planning and how we can all be more involved. Well, today we are so honored to have Harold Avinsky here uh, with us on the podcast. So Harold, you have been named the Dean of Financial Planning. I've seen that name um, thrown out about you. You are regularly recognized as one of the top fee-only financial planners in the country. You've sat on multiple boards, the ICFP, the IAFP, the CFP board, various functions. You've won the Heart of Financial Planning Award. You've written books. You've pushed our profession forward. You've pretty much done it all. And this year, you were awarded with the P. Kemp, J- P. Kemp Fain Jr. Award, uh, which is really the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for financial planners. And when we, I, w- I was there when you got the award, and, and it was so neat seeing you up there, getting the standing ovation. And what did that feel like, getting, getting that recognition from, from the financial planning profession? It was... <laughs> Quite extraordinary, and given all the ones before me, it was most humbling. And all I can say is there were a whole lot of other people that helped me get there. But it was fun. I have to admit that. I did enjoy it. (laughs) So in your speech, you mentioned how much you love this profession and how fortunate you feel. But why do you love this profession so much? I guess the answer is sort of what not to love. The work itself and the planning process, and particularly for me, the investment universe is fascinating and interesting. There's always something new. Um, But the best part is is working with individuals, with the clients, and um, helping them enjoy their life in a way in which, you know, they decide they want to enjoy it. and then uh, the other participants, the, uh, my, my staff, my associates, my partners, and the other practitioners, um, it, it's just a, a very, I don't, I don't know how to say it, I guess a, a nice, comforting, wonderful universe of, of people. Um, I'm often asked, well, you know, gee, how come you... You write these books, you do these talks, and you tell your competitors everything you're doing. And that's just not what our profession is all about. Um, we don't see each other as competitors. We see each other as friends and associates. So it's just a great environment with fun things to do. You know, that connects so much when I talk to these young planners about why they're getting into into this profession is they just want to be able to help people. So it's so cool to see that, that is, that's a theme that can be there your whole career. Oh, absolutely. The reality is it's also a very good career path simply from, you know, a business and financial standpoint. The opportunities are quite extraordinary. The I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of of graduates there are from MBA programs and and law schools and you know, they scramble for jobs. As my partner, my wife Dina says, when we graduate someone 
You know, they walk out with a diploma in one hand and three job offers in the other. The opportunity, just the, the personal career opportunity is extraordinary. And unlike pretty much any other profession I know of, the likelihood of someone ultimately becoming an owner of the firm is extremely high uh, because we're selling off interest to our next gen. Pretty much everyone in our firm has some ownership interest. And they in turn need to sell to someone else, which is going to be the younger associates that we're hiring now. It's a fun business. It's, it's a financially rewarding and it's very entrepreneurial. You mentioned that, you know, when you got the award, there were so many other people that helped you get to where you're, where you are now. Um, who's really influenced you as, as a professional? Wow. There just, there've been so many, I would certainly say, We've been involved in a, a, a small group called the Alpha Group for, good Lord, we're probably going on 20 years. So it's a lot of those members. Some are practitioners uh, like Peggy Ruland and John Ulicky from Memphis and Don Phillips. Don uh, was the one who many years ago referred to me as the dean, which I've enjoyed all, all these years. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, there's just, uh, you know, David Bugen, Ross Levin, Mark Belasa, uh, Mark DeBersion. I mean, I can go on and on. And then one of my very closest friends, my BFF, Patty Houlihan, who followed me as chair of the CFP board. The sort of non-practitioners, uh, Tucker Hughes, and as I said, Don. And then there's our fiduciary committee, Skip Swice. Ron Roger, <laughs> there's just there's so many, um, and I'm you know I'm I'm leaving out so many. I feel guilty, but there just are so many that have been major influences for me along the way. Yeah. So when you got started in in your career, what could you have never imagined that's actually happened? Being where I am today, <laughs> I, I was I grew up. Uh, in, in the building business, my undergraduate and graduate was in civil engineering and business. And I started off working for a family firm and ultimately started my own, what's called production home building. You put up a number of models and then build houses from there and had a fairly large business, one of the larger ones in, in South Florida. But the the ups and downs of the economy convinced me that I either need to be like one or two or number 2,000, but being mid-size was a non-starter. So I kind of looked around for something and investing. The market looked interesting. Ended up getting a job with, the time, it was Beige now, Prudential. And after a few months of training, a month in New York, they sent me down to the telephone and said, start calling. The first lady I got sounded like my grandmother, and she hung up on me. And I said, whoa, this is going to be a short career. And I happened to see an ad for something called the College for Financial Planning and said, well, gee, that looks interesting. And I enrolled in the program and started doing what we called yellow pad planning, which literally was what we did back in those days. And I gave seminars six days a week, uh, sat people down at the secretary's desk and talked about the new tax act. There was always a new tax act. And so that's how I built my business was through the planning process and took a lot of time, but it was successful. And 
So I was a VP Investments at, at Bates and I decided I wanted to work with a little more sophisticated universe. So I joined Drexel Burnham and I'm there downtown in Miami. It was a good experience. I was about three years at Bates and about three years at Drexel and left before they had their problems. The only issue was they never understood what I wanted to do. Um, you know, it was always, here's a good bond, here's a good that. So I said, well, I need to do my own thing. So I started my practice on my dining room table and uh, grew the business from there. We were in business. I had one other partner. And years or so later, I had met Dina Katz, who's subsequently became my partner and my wife. And we became professional friends. And this is went way back, a really famous story. She was in Chicago, had her own practice, and we were talking and one day, and she said, well, I'm thinking of moving down to Florida. My mom's retiring, and I'd like to be down near her. And I said, why don't you come join us? At the time, I had one partner and not much of a business. She said, let me think about it. And she called back a couple of days later and said, I'm interested, but I have two conditions. I said, okay. She said, I've always owned my own business, so I want to be an equal partner. I know you have one other, whatever's a fair price, I'll pay it. I said, okay. Uh, since we weren't worth much at the time, that wasn't a big issue. So what's the other one? She said, I've always run my own business. If I come down, I want to be president. So oh. I went to my partner who was supposedly running the business. So what do you think? He said, how fast can she get here? So <laughs> Dina, Dina came down and said, you know, you guys are terrific. You do wonderful stuff. But, you know, you haven't build some people forever. Yeah, we're not real comfortable with that. Long and short is we had our own what's called a, a, a broker dealer. She said, we're selling that off. We're going fee only. And she's the one that really built the business and made us a financial success. It was a fun trip. I still shake my head when I see how big we are, how many people we have. So I'm, I still can't believe that, but it, it's been a, f- a fun ride. So in your firm, how, how big, like how many people do you have? In Miami, there are uh, about 25. We have about five in our Lubbock office. And I think in, in Miami, sort of lose count, I think we have seven graduates of our financial planning program at Texas Tech. And we have um, three in our Texas office. One of the nice things about Dean and I both teaching there is we have the opportunity to cherry pick what we think are the very best. So we we have some extraordinary, uh, you know, young people, young professionals. You're a professor, so academia has always been important to you. How did you how did you get into into that world and into the world of researching and really contributing to the the knowledge base of the financial of the profession? Well, once again, that was really Dina. Um, for a variety of reasons, going back to some health issues, she decided she needed to make a change. And we had been friendly with um, a couple of people that really established the program at Tech over 20 years ago. And she told them, she said, well, I'd like a job. They said, well, come teach anytime you want. She said, no, I want a tenure track opportunity. They said, well, come on. So she went to uh, Tech and became a professor. I shuttled back and forth from Miami uh, for a number of years. And 
then after quite a few years, moved here. And since I was coming here, I got a role as as a um, an associate professor, a um, an adjunct professor. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, but then after a number of years, the opportunity came uh, to become a full professor, what's called a professor of practice. So I had a, a half-time appointment as a full professor, but only <clears throat> taught one class a semester, the wealth management class, uh, which was the master's and, and doctoral students. And so that's what I taught for, for many, many years until I retired last semester. So going going from a practitioner's perspective to a professor's perspective, what changed for you? Like, how did your perspective about the profession change um, with that kind of change in role? It really didn't. It, it, what, what I was trying to change was the academic orientation, trying to relate the two somewhat more. Probably the best example was at the end of the semester, students would write a critique or notes about the professor. And one of the students wrote in a very negative and pejorative manner, he treats us like we work for his firm. (laughs) And my reaction was, fantastic, he got it. So that, that went into my syllabus. I said, I am going to treat you like you, you know, you work, work for my firm. The difference being in, in, Academia today, there's something called rubrics, which are sort of guidelines that students are used to getting. So if you give them an assignment, you give them rubrics, which are kind of the steps you expect them to uh, to follow. And that's something never made sense to me. So one of my major assignments would be your boss just called you into the office and said the firm uh, needs to replace its small cap domestic value manager come back and make a recommendation to the investment committee. And that was it. That was all I told them. And everyone said, well, what's the rubrics? I said, boss isn't going to give you rubrics. If you got a question, I'm your boss. You don't come back and ask me. So that was sort of the, the orientation or the, the nature of the way I taught the class and got some interesting responses. But all in all, my students were ultimately happy with it and Subsequently, I would get, you know, nice notes. But my point was, I said, I want you to go, uh, when you join a practice, I want you to blow the socks off your boss about, you know, how much you know and, you know, how, how valuable you can be day one. So for me, that was, that was the difference. And try and encourage the, the doctoral students to, to do research that I, as a practitioner, would find useful. In, in academia today, uh, I guess it's been this way forever. It's, you know, publish or perish. And the problem with that is uh, to publish, you need to write papers that are interesting to the publications that have prestige. Typically, that means a lot of analytics and, and data and statistics. And that requires, you know, a lot of numbers. Most of the research is what I call sociological research. For example, women are more conservative than men. And I believe that's probably very true. And if I were setting policy, that would probably be important to know. But as a practitioner, if I follow that as kind of a rule of thumb, 
that may be a disaster if I'm sitting with a couple because the wife may be far more risk tolerant than the husband. The problem is doing research on individual issues doesn't lend itself to a lot of statistical analysis. Mm. So that one of my soapboxes has been to try and get some students to focus on, again, research that a practitioner can use. Well, you talked a lot about helping students be very valuable day one, working with their new bosses and in their new roles. What are the other pieces of advice for people who are listening to this and they're like, hey, like, I want to be valuable. What do I need to be doing? How do I need to be thinking differently about my, my work and, and what I'm doing? One, don't just focus on the academics. Attend or become an associate member of you know, your local FPA chapter. Read the publications, you know, uh, financial advisor, financial planning, journal of financial planning. So read what the profession is reading and read what your clients are going to be reading. You know, read Money Magazine. You may want to pay attention, you know, read the Wall Street Journal, but, you know, Money Magazine and Kipling are, are going to probably be more useful to get a feeling for, you know, what your clients are, are really reading and paying attention to. but. You know, get involved. Uh, we have a, a program at Tech called Red to Black, where the students provide counseling to members of, of the university community. I mean, that's a great experience. Uh, some are involved in a program uh, that assists people in, in doing their uh, tax planning. And anything like that that provides some really client interaction experience is going to be just terrific. The other is, don't just limit your interest to you know the firms like ours. There's great opportunities and in, in, in firms like you know the warehouses, like you know the Merrills, the, the UBSs. Uh, they have great training programs, and the institutions, for good reasons, often get uh, maybe some bad publicity. But the individuals working there, there are a lot of really terrific professionals. And so that can be great experience. There's so much opportunity in, in the profession right now for, for new planners. It's, it's quite remarkable. It's unbelievable. You know, uh, we have one or two people that come down to what we call career day, which is where the students do interviews. Um, and I, I, I tell my partners, when you're interviewing, if you have someone that you think is really terrific, Make a job offer on the spot, because if you wait to the end of the day, you probably won't get them. I mean, it's that competitive. Wow. That's, that's impressive. It is impressive. So one of the things that you're known for, in, especially in like the investment field and a lot of your research, you're kind of one of the people to bring the investment strategy of core and satellite. How did that come about? Quite a few years ago, and is any practitioner, financial planner should be doing, uh, sort of looking ahead to what I thought the long-term future was going to be. And my conclusion was that returns across the board, stocks, bonds, were likely to be extraordinarily modest compared to the historical returns that you know, we'd been used to. And so I was trying to think of, well, you know, What's that mean? What, what are the consequences of that? And you know, my process for doing that is, I guess, an academic sort of, you know, crunching some numbers. And I, I wrote a couple of articles. I did a paper, the Journal of Financial Planning, 
in my conclusion was we needed to be hypersensitive to expenses and taxes. We had always talked about risk and return, but didn't really pay a lot of attention to that, that third element because when you're you know, earning 12, 14%, wasn't all that critical. But when I did my, my analysis, I concluded that just saving like a half a percent by managing expenses and taxes can make a huge difference in, in the net, what I call net, 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 after taxes, after expenses, and after inflation, which was really the killer. And then trying to figure out, well, what do we do about it? Nothing had changed in my investment philosophy, diversification, large and small cap, domestic international value, et cetera. And sort of looking around at what strategies or approaches were out there, I came across at the time, it was primarily an institutional strategy. It wasn't something I invented, uh, which was core and satellite. The idea being you take the bulk of your investments and invest them in a very cost and tax efficient manner um, instead of taking little pieces of extra risk throughout the portfolio. You take that whole risk budget and you can concentrate it on what's referred to as the satellite. And so it's really a fairly simple idea. In our case, it became 80% of the investments, and this is the equity, is core, very diversified, very traditional, large cap, small cap, with an international, with because we believe in Fama French, a slight overweighting to value. And that pretty much uh, was all allocated to index funds, ETFs, but then we had that whole, quote, risk budget we could focus on the satellite, which in our case is about 20%. So that's, that was the change we made. So you've spent your career dedicated to the financial planning profession. What do you think are the most important issues in financial planning today? Certainly one is the whole you know, fiduciary debate. What is the relationship between a client and who they're working with, who either is providing or purports to provide advice what are the relative responsibilities? To me, that is at the very tippy top of, of issues. Next would be sort of realistic, forward-looking returns in, in markets. What can people reasonably and realistically count on? I'm afraid there's just a massive amount of unwarranted optimism or or naivism on the part of the investing public. And then I actually, I probably should put it to top, real planning. There's way too much, in my opinion, either no planning or pseudo planning being offered out there. Planning is is not necessarily easy. Each individual has pretty complex lives and issues, and it requires a lot of effort to to do a good job. But to plan the quality of the rest of your life. Uh, by rules of thumb and simplistic planning, I think is dangerous. And to say that, well, if someone doesn't have much money or resources, they can do simpler planning. I think that's absurd. I think they need better planning. The reality is for most of my clients, if I did a lousy job, you know, their grandkids uh, might get less money. They're not likely to miss a meal. If someone has limited resources, 
and the planning is not very good, the quality of their life might be significantly negatively impacted. I guess those would be, be my list. Yeah. And, and so I'm really interested in this idea of, of real planning and what is real planning, um, especially for the people who are new to the profession and they're working for somebody right now. How do they know if they're in those, what you call the pseudo planning versus the real planning? The, the distinguishing differences are how detailed uh, is the process. In other words, if they're using you know, the typical robo-planning that has a built-in assumptions that in many cases you have no idea what they are. And a number of, of my uh, academic associates and I uh, did a paper that, that's now in submission for publication, uh, the efficacy of public retirement planning software. And our original premise was it might not be very good, but it would be a good, you know, useful guideline or educational tool. Our final conclusion was it's not very good and it's potentially very dangerous because you come up with, depending on which of these softwares you use, radically different conclusions. And many of them, for example, they ask a question, you know, you're trying to figure out how long you need the money. There's nothing about are you a smoker or non-smoker. Something as simple as that makes a huge difference in expected mortality. I mean, that's a simple example of Know, the kind of information that you would need to make a reasonable suggestions or plans for yourself if you're doing planning. And then even those who are using the, the very powerful institutional software, such as MoneyGuide, which is we use, often they may have one or two goals. You can't do much planning if, if you don't break down what someone's needs are in a whole lot more detail than one or two goals. Or if you're doing planning and you assume, well, gee, you're spending $50,000 now and you extrapolate that by inflation, but you know, 8,000 of that is a mortgage. Well, a mortgage isn't going to inflate, it's going to disappear. So not taking those fairly simple and obvious things into account is likely to end up with nonsense as a result. Looking in the broad sense, I mean, the future really is planning. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. We have no control over markets. We have a great deal of control over the planning process. You know, I, I always remember, and I, I've said this a number of times on the podcast, I remember um, pitching financial planning to a client that we had had at this, where I had worked for, for several years. And their response was, oh my gosh, this is what we've been looking for, but we never knew what it was. And it was like, yes, that's, planning is yeah, very I powerful. Think, I think any good planner has has heard that on more than one occasion. Yeah. And, you know, say our job isn't to make our clients rich. Hopefully it's to, you know, see they don't get poor, but to help them enjoy their life in, in a manner in which they define it. And one of my very favorite stories, and it, it, it's true, it's probably 20 years old now, but I had an elderly physician um, was in his 80s, and he was still practicing. Um, and I did a plan for him. But when I say practicing, you know, he would go in maybe one or two days a week for a few hours. And, and when I did the plan and he came back in, I said, doctor, you know, you need to sit down. I said, I've done the analysis. And my conclusion is if you keep working, it's going to cost you. And I, I don't remember today, but let's say thirty, forty thousand $40,000 a year because 
you know, your overhead, your insurance and everything uh, is far more than you're making from an income. And he just deflated like someone popped a balloon. And I said, well, I'm not finished yet. He said, okay. I said, my recommendations, you keep working. He said, Harold, that makes no sense whatsoever. You just told me I'd lose money if I keep working. I said, doctor, you have substantial resources. If you don't keep working, it's going to probably cost you three times as much in psychiatric bills. And your kids and grandkids will never know the difference between, you know, thirty dollars or $40,000 a year of extra cost. So no question, you ought to keep working. <laughs> he t- that's the best news I've ever heard. So that's what planning is all about, to tell someone to keep working when it's costing them, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. Yeah. So that's, that's the difference between what we do and someone who's trying to tell you how to beat the market. Yeah. What are we selling clients? You know, are we selling them on planning or are we selling them on some investment strategy? Right. And that's the difference basically between, you know, brokers and planning. And there's a role for both. Again, that's not to say one's good and one's bad. They're just different professions and different goals. If you were starting over fresh, if you were, you know, a 22-year-old coming out of school, what would you do differently in your career? Good question. I don't know that I'd do anything differently. Admittedly, I bumbled through the whole process, but I, I, I was lucky in my bumbling, I guess. <laughs> I would say in, in addition to you know, just trying to do a really good job of, of your job, uh, get involved in the profession. Get involved in whether it's uh, you know, the FPA or NAPA or the AICPA, or for that matter, all of the above. I'm members of all of them because it, it's not just working with your clients. It's you know, working with your peers and, and paying back to the profession. You'll get far more in return than you're going to ever put into it. So where do you see financial planning in the next 40 years? Okay, oh 40 years, I'd see it ultimately becoming a profession. I think it may, may take 40 years to get there. Uh, but no, I, I think I think it will continue to be a a slow growth. But I, I believe that what I think is going to be a low return environment is going to to move it along a little faster pace because people who today may not realize how important good planning is are are going learn the hard way. We always found that bear markets were the best time for us from a business standpoint, because when the market's going straight up, everyone looks brilliant and no one's really interested in hearing our story about planning. When things turn around, it's kind of a wake-up call. Uh, It's not uncommon. I had uh, years ago, someone come in and I did a plan and said, well, I think you can earn whatever percent. And he turned beet red, slammed his fist down and said, well, my barber can do better than that. And he walked out. But about a year later, we went through a serious bear market. He came back in and said, Harold, he said, I think I'm ready to listen. <laughs> uh, so if indeed markets uh, are kind of rough, I think that will expedite the public's awareness and interest in, in planning and, and help us move towards a profession faster. Uh, plus, we have you know, now the growth of the academic programs. So I think we're on a really good path right now. Mm-hmm. And what would be your hope for, I mean, the students you've taught or these new planners who are coming into the profession? 
I would hope that that they do join and stay in, in the profession, um, but do more than just their job. I would hope that, like a, a lot of my friends and, and the ones before me, that they get actively involved in, in, in building it as a profession, and not just building their business practice. If you like this episode, you can find more at fpaactivate.org and be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.